What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Live Free Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mike Maxwell. Today's guest is Mr. Brian Douglas, a.k.a. Elbow Toe. I first became familiar with his work around the time that the street art scene began to blossom and sort of come into its own and be its own thing. I think he stood out because a lot of the work that he did was, was hand-done, and I, that was something that was interesting to me. He sat down with me for a chat via Skype from New York. Uh, we talked Dallas, art school, die carvings, street work, Red Hook, paper paintings, learning, monkeys on an island, archetypes, paper cuts, black rat projects, Drago Press, daily draws, new worlds, casual observances, advertising, McKenna rites of spring, and mating rituals. So, as always, make sure you go check out the website, MikeMaxWater.com, and click on the blog. You'll get all the information on Brian and all the other guests who have been on the show. Also, a big announcement to do for this show, the uh, Live Free Raffle is back on after its, its short hiatus. I have a bunch of awesome donations from my sponsors to use for giveaways. Um, what we're trying to do is raise a little money for the podcast so that uh, we can upgrade equipment, uh, get a few more mics, probably switch over to the XLR system instead of the USB mics so we could get a little bit more professional here and a little bit better sounding. There are some limitations to what I have now, but obviously I can keep doing what I'm doing. Um, and the show is always for free. So what we're going to do is is raffle off uh, uh, these huge gift packs. I have uh, t-shirts from dsdshop.com. I have this really awesome gift pack from keepabreast.org, which there'll be photographs of all this stuff up on the blog for you to check out. An awesome package of two shirts and a hat from Brixton Manufacturing. Two brand new pair of Spy sunglasses, thanks to spyoptic.com. Uh, we have a, a men's and women's pair of sunglasses. And... Um, all you have to do is donate $5 to the show. For every $5 that you donate, you'll get a raffle ticket. So if you donate $10, you'll get two raffle tickets and so on. If you've donated to the show already, I'm going to go ahead and just enter you into the, the raffle as is. Uh, just because you, you went out of your way to do something without any sort of sense of reward coming back. So I want to I want to include everyone who's done that. But of course, don't let that stop you from picking up a couple extra raffle tickets, maybe buy them for your mom or something. Uh, uh, so make sure you check all that out. I'm going to post all the information on the blog so that you could uh, check out the, the items that are available in the raffle. And uh, of course, I want to make sure I give a shout out to all the sponsors who donated stuff, which is super amazing. And, and I'm really happy that Local companies, these are all San Diego companies, San Diego-based companies that are donating to the show. And in turn, I want to get you guys going over to their websites, make sure you click on their stuff, and check out some of the things they got for sale, and support uh, privately-owned local business, because it's important if we want to if we want to change this economy and, and really do something for ourselves, we, we have to support our inner community first. So... Make sure you go check out dsdshop.com and, and buy some of the awesome shirts that Adam Honky Kong Hathorn is making. And there's a whole bunch of new stuff that I got a little sneak preview of that is going to be up on the site soon. Um, and you can always go check out his stuff online. If you just search Honky Kong, it'll come up. Also, keepabreast.org. Uh, Amanda over there made this really, really cool gift pack full of, of t-shirts and information and stickers and patches and and all kinds of cool stuff in this little pirate treasure box. Um, that'll be one of the giveaways. Brixton Manufacturing, who I've been working with for a while, I, I've done a t-shirt with them and and plan to do some more stuff in the future. Uh, it's Brixton.com. Make sure you go check their stuff out. They got uh, new stuff coming out uh, each season, and their, their products keep getting cooler and cooler. Uh, if you're into the hat scene, they got every single type of hat that you could think of. Make sure you go check them out. And new to the show uh, for the first time, spyoptic.com, S-P-Y-O-P-T-I-C.com, has, uh, of course, donated two awesome pairs of sunglasses, which is a huge prize pack. If you donate $5, you could theoretically win two pairs of $100 plus pair of sunglasses. So go ahead and do all that. Check out the blog, MikeMaxWater.com, and just click on the blog link, and it'll bring you right there. 
All the donations are done through PayPal, so it's all, you know, legit. Make sure you do all that. And, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Mr. Brian, a.k.a. Elbow Toe Douglas. Let's call Brian here and see uh, see what's doing. What's up, Brian? Hey, how's it going, man? Good, how are you? I'm very good. Let's jump right into this thing. Thank you for taking the time to do the show. I appreciate it. <clears throat> Absolutely, man. Maybe we could talk about your early life a little bit. Um, where did you sure grow thing. up at? I uh, grew up in Dallas, Texas. Basically lived in a suburb of Dallas until I was um, 18. And then I uh, came up to New York for uh, art school. Where did you go to art school at? I uh, went to School Visual Arts uh, here in New York City. And was was that an early plan for you? Like, you know, coming uh, out of high school? Yeah, I think, like, when I was, once I was 16, I ended up getting into this uh, commercial art class. Um, and it, uh, I guess it was sort of like a vocational program that they had at my school. Um, the class was like, I think, three or four hours a day. And um, uh, the instructor of the program had... Um, had gone to school visual arts back when uh, I think like Bern Hogarth and like all those old sort of like comic book guys because it mm-hmm. used to be a a school for comic book art I think at one point. Huh. That must so have been- gone there for that and, and uh, you know as soon as I heard that that was a place where my teacher had gone I was like that's where I'm gonna go. I imagine art school back then you know for those old school guys must have been such a strange different world in comparison to like kids nowadays going through the art school system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was cheap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was actually, I had uh, I had some kids working for me that that went to SBA now, and I think they're paying like thirty thousand dollars a year for art school. <laughs> it's 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 so it's scary for me to think with those kids what kind of debt those kids are going to f- be facing. You know, growing into adulthood. Yeah, having to pay off bills with a, a job skill set that maybe isn't. <laughs> yeah, and the you most know, practical. <laughs> right. There isn't always a lot of money in this uh, this field to be paying off all yeah. that extra credit card debt. Did you have some early support from family members or people around you to sort of uh, push you into an art field to where, you know, probably a lot of kids in high school aren't aren't really thinking art career, you know, at 16 yeah. or or even um, art school? My grandfather is a uh, or was a professional they're called die makers it's it's like the he was the guy that carved the the initial relief for like all kinds of coins like tokens mm-hmm. mardi gras coins like so there was definitely like an art uh streak running through my family kind of on both sides so my parents were very supportive once i i kind of you know like every kid stumbled through uh a number of things that i just hated and uh, once I kind of found that I was into art, I, it just became a passion for me. Yeah. And uh, so I kind of knew right away that that's what I wanted to do, regardless of uh, what other jobs I had to work on the side to, to make it happen. Well, I think the, the first time I became familiar with your work was the, uh, the street stuff first, which is kind of interesting. You mentioned uh, your grandfather doing the, uh, the dyes and stuff, and there's something very similar to uh, lino cuts and, and wood yeah, cuts, which yeah, yeah. is what you used for a lot of the, your beginning posters. Is that, is that mm-hmm. accurate? <clears throat> yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's weird uh, that we're both sort of these relief artists. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he even gave me, like, he gave me a Dremel when I was in college, and I'm like, what am I going to do with this? And, uh, you know, years later, I end up using a Dremel from all my woodcuts, basically. So Yeah. Do you want to uh, talk a, a little bit about the, your, uh, your street work processes? In, in like sure. the, Because um, from someone who, who has followed, uh, you know, graffiti and street work for over, you know, 15 years or whatever, I know in particularly in the poster world, there's there's uh, there's a lot of try to make as much as you can for the least amount of money and effort, you know, in like going and yeah. blowing up Kinko's posters. Whereas a lot of the work that I saw from you when I first recognized your stuff was it looked like a lot of hand done work being placed yeah. um, out in the streets. 
Yeah, um, uh, I guess when I started off, yeah, it all it, it was all kind of hand painted pieces. I started doing some uh, wood blocks. I had done these hand painted pieces on uh, contact paper at first. That sort of I wanted to put things out there that looked like paintings on panels that I could end up gluing onto doors. And so I kind of started with that, and then I had you know I mean like I really didn't know anything about street art. Uh, I mean like. I knew a couple different artists at that point. Like I had seen like neck faces stuff around, you know, I, I just didn't really pay much attention to street art or graffiti besides that. And then uh, a friend of mine had shot a lot of photos. Uh, I mean, I live in Brooklyn and there's this area called Red Hook. It's sort of over, it's, it was like where they fixed all the ships and stuff. And I think Swoon and this other woman named Solovey had both done a lot of, of work out there. And uh, they had showed me, uh, my friend had shown me these um, these photos of of these woodcuts, and you know I had done like lino cuts and woodcuts in college, mm-hmm. and so I was like, oh wow, I didn't even think about that as a printing technique because I don't you know I didn't know silkscreen that well, and it seemed like a relatively inexpensive process because um, I just you know I would go buy some lumber at the like hardware store or whatever for yeah. my for my blocks. And so I started, I kind of basically thought, okay, I'll make these things that I can re- reproduce a bunch of. Um, and I ended up finding that for the most part, I got bored putting out the same image after about two or three times. Yeah. Um, I just never really found repetition to be that interesting unless it was like there was a real reason that I was trying to repeat something. Kind of after that point, like I'd done, I mean, I've done some like big ones, uh, some big lino cuts. So I was like a piano, guy with a piano on his back that he was for, for show. and was also like I was driving out to Los Angeles and, I, and like the element of repetition, like to put this piece up along Route 66 every so often, like it made sense to me for that. But since then, I haven't really um, done a lot of linoleum work or relief work at all it's more you know I've, I've kind of taken this collage process that i do and i use kinkos and a hand color them now so well yeah that um, comes along with being able to afford kinkos after a little while of, of doing some other work right well, yeah well you know, <laughs> for afford kinkos i mean you know there are there are ways <laughs> yeah yeah i um <clears throat> i used to have to make all the shepherd fairies prints for him at kinkos when he was in san diego mm. i was his assistant yeah and i used to get rewards for being able to to come back with with more posters than than what were paid for so of course there's yeah there's a lot of little <laughs> ins and outs of kinkos which unfortunately i don't have those skills anymore but um yeah. <laughs> it was something really valuable. It's a lot easier when you're younger and you don't care. <laughs> yeah, right. So you, you had mentioned uh, the collage work. I know you do something called paper paintings, or you like to call it. Do you, do you, yeah, yeah. you avoid the, the collage term? Does yeah, that have a negative connotation for it? I think it's, you know. <laughs> for me, I, I remember the first time seeing the your, your more fine art stuff. I, uh, from a distance, you know, it, for me, I live in San Diego, so I I don't I actually have to look at a lot of my art on the internet. I don't get an opportunity to yeah. see a lot in person. So mm-hmm. seeing your works the first time, I thought for sure they were just paintings, not just paintings, but you know I thought it was you yeah. know acrylic on paper or, or oils or something. And at further inspection, you realize that it's a bunch of little pieces of paper put together. Yeah. I assume you know going through school and stuff that you and you do a lot of drawing as well. Um, yeah. Painting was something that you did prior to the the collage and paper painting work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was you know oil painter for almost twenty years, kind of before I got into the. Uh, well, I mean, I'm still doing it kind of when I started the street art stuff, but uh, you know, I've been a painter for ages. So, yeah. and so like a lot of times, looking well, making that that misconception that the works were painting before being able to get that close-up view, which you don't always get on the internet, you know, obviously yeah, yeah. A, a big difference than looking at the works in person. Mm-hmm. Um, my initial thought, you know, was, wow, it seems like that would be much easier to paint than to cut all those <laughs> little pieces out. Now, is is that challenge something that's important for you? Kind of, and like, um, I guess, you know, I was a very good student, <laughs> so <laughs> I really sort of picked up my, like, sort of mark making of like everyone that I've ever worked with using 
like the materials that like I had worked with, right? So like when I, if I do like the pencil drawing, I totally like make marks the way the guy who taught me how to draw, you know, right? Makes marks and and the way I worked with oil paint was the same way. So I I don't know my own hand within that sort of medium, and I mean I've tried for years to kind of shake that, but mm-hmm. it just it left such an imprint. And when I got into doing the paperwork. I could see my own hand in there for the first time. And so that's kind of, even though it's, you know, I could do it 10 times faster if it was paint. Um, there's something nice about having like complete control of the situation and like seeing my own hand in the process. Cause you know, I can have like the splatters that I always liked that I couldn't control or the drips or anything like that. It's uh a bit of a control freak, I guess. Yeah, well, no, that makes sense. I mean, because a lot of people don't think about it in terms of how we actually learn how to do things. You know, it's one of those things that's sort of subconscious to us. Um, You know, like, we don't ever think of, like, wow, we learned how to do this thing from this moment in our life. You know, it just becomes Mm -hmm. a thing that we do. And that's a big topic I like to talk about with artists who, well, artists who went to art school and artists who are um, self-taught. And finding that, that correlation between like really learning from teachers who can only teach you what they know how to do. And yeah. then, you know, the difference being with a self-taught artist where they really, they have to learn on their own, but they're still learning from looking at what other people do, yeah. you know, because you, I like the, the Wu-Tang line. How could he know what the fuck he never knew? Yeah. You know, we got to learn things. It's not just yeah. all of a sudden we're brilliant. So I mean, I feel even like as like, you know, having had formal training, over half of what I did was looking at other people's stuff, you know? I mean, you've got someone there that maybe is sort of like has a, a path you can follow, like you can have a discourse with. You can't like you can go look at a painting and it'll talk back to you a certain amount, but it's not you can't be like, how did you do that? You know? Yeah. And so when I kind of found out the kind of training that was involved to make those sort of things happen, I realized that to have that sort of skill set, you could be one of those brilliant, like genius artists that just knows how to do it. But, (laughs) you know, for the most part, a lot of people had to go through, you know, breaking things down and building it back up again. Yeah. And making lots of mistakes too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's funny. We talk about these things. It's like, uh, have you heard that theory about um, like a a group of monkeys on an Island learn how to uh, do a particular task? And all of a sudden, another group of monkeys on a separate island pick up the same task. No, no, that's cool, though. <laughs> yeah, it's some sort of mind wave thing. I don't know if it's like some hokey pokey new age <laughs> shit. But just the idea of like what it was, it's, you know, if one new monkey learns something, all the other monkeys on the island figure it out. And then, you know, it becomes yeah. this overall consciousness thing of, of how we learn from one another. But we don't always yeah. like to admit it, you know, because we yeah, think we're, so, we're such we're, geniuses. We're all just a bunch of monkeys. <laughs> That's how I. Uh, that's how I can make this world seem a lot funnier sometimes. Yeah, there's something very uh, like personal in in the pieces that I've seen of yours that seem to to have some sort of personal interrelationship um, stories going on. But there's also like a sense of folklore, some sort of underlining stories that may have like this like Americana sort of story like feeling to them is is yeah. that something conscious for you in the works i mean i definitely um i kind of enjoy putting a bunch of layers onto these images just because uh i want it to be the kind of work that like someone can experience for a long period of time rather than have this kind of quick read they get it and that's kind of it like the yeah. work can't really grow with you at that point um and my like my wife's uh, an actress and so i you know I see a lot of theater and um, actually read a lot of plays. And so I, you know, I try to bring in things that I've been reading and thinking about to put into the work. I, I um, did a lot of work uh, with like a Jungian analyst at one point. So there was all that sort of like archetypes, exploring that sort of idea um, within the context of yourself and, and how it relates to sort of this larger, you know, collective unconscious sort of thing. So I kind of pull that kind of stuff into the work and then just my own you know I mean it's very easy to like look to yourself and you could look at your whole life and find all these sort of stories about yourself or what you're dealing with at the current moment and 
maybe use that as the springboard and how it relates to all these other kind of stories that you're you're interested in. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's like particularly like American, um, but I could say, like I feel like the pieces I actually did on paper for the current show. They, they I was talking to a, a guy when I was over in London about it. And there is something that feels sort of like that spareness that there was like. You know, it was definitely was not a conscious decision in terms of like it relating to that sort of world. Because I like I try so hard to push away from illustration. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, I went to school for it, and like about a year and a half into it, I was just like, I don't want to be an illustrator. Yet I still have that vocabulary uh-huh. I think, that I kind of picked up from that. Uh, I mean, I guess that sort of is where the narrative element. Yeah, it's it's in. interesting you mentioned the plays and your and your wife being an actress too. I think um, a lot of the the juxtapositions of some of the the layouts of the work have a sort of stage set look yeah. to them. And, and you, there was a, I, I can't recall which piece it was, but the one of the new ones I think that were from your recent show. There's uh, two bushes that are actually like wood cutouts that would that yeah. be on a stage yeah right? and all the all those pieces actually on the panel for the latest show are all sort of these you know everything's on a stage you know you can i always try to have one of them turn to the side a bit so you can get a sense that it's like those like warner brothers cartoons where you see like the old <laughs> west town but it's like all it is is like the faces of things yeah. um to just kind of allude to the fact that like none of this is actual reality that i'm sort of you know, I want to kind of like toss a little something in there for people to kind of be able to pull back and maybe realize that I'm not trying to make this realistic, uh, you know, image, that it's something bigger than that. Yeah. But, they, you know, it's interesting how I think when viewers of of narrative or like figurative works, I, I get this sense that they want it to be a little off of reality, mm-hmm. which I think your works are, are realistic in the sense that the the figuratives are very detailed yeah. uh, with with the way that you apply uh, the pieces of paper and, and things. But there's still like a sense of, of slight disproportion sometimes yeah. that I think is, is interesting and causes people's brains to kind of readjust to like a really long arm or something, mm-hmm. you know, and I, there's, it's almost like those slight variations in reality are what people are, are enjoying or, or finding some sort of attachment to have you found that to be the case at all um i guess i mean i'm just you know or for instance let me uh bring up another one of your pieces the the i believe it was from your show at think space maybe um the sweet dreams where you're there's a, a woman laying on her side sleeping and you're squeezing a uh a honey bear yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a man in a bee suit. I don't know. Is that you yeah. in the bee suit? No, it was, it, was my, it was actually me and my wife. And so, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I figured after uh, hearing that your wife's the actress and the stage set and stuff. Um, yeah. Do you set up a lot of shots? Do you do, um, do you act as I a director? I mean, I don't like, I mean, like when I went to SBA, like the teachers I had were like, you know, those like Fabio romance novel covers? Uh-huh. Like my, the, one of my painting teachers was like the guy that made Fabio. And he would do these whole like, stage sets where he, everything had to be like i mean he basically recreated a photo you know like <laughs> yeah so he had the rugs and all that stuff and you know for, for my part like you know i'll do a sketch so i can get a sense of like composition and then i just shoot shoot everything separately or i'll go on you know i go on Flickr a lot to find little objects that mm-hmm. like i can break down and figure out how to like recreate it within a space sort of thing but this uh, i mean i work off reference I mean, I guess in, in like in terms of what you were saying earlier about like the disproportion of things, I was really, I mean, still am a huge fan of Soutine. I don't know if you're familiar with his paintings. Uh, he was like this uh, Lithuanian painter back in the like 20s and 30s. He was like friends with Modigliani and uh, he was, he distorted everything. He's really blue stuff all out of the place. And I mean, he was had a huge influence on like Bacon and Mm-hmm. and corn, like I mean, all, I mean, uh, de Kooning, all that kind of abstract stuff because it was very visceral. And so I, I really started when I started doing the street art. I really thought this would be a great place to try that sort of thing, to blow things out as a way to sort of make them stand out a bit more on the walls. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, just as a challenge to myself to see how 
sort of fucked up I could make something and but still like if you look at it long enough you'll kind of see where it, what's actually inside of that um so that's kind of where it came from and that with the works now it's I'll slip it in there but it's not like everything's completely messed up so it's more for emphasis at this point than it is for sort of like some style thing if that well, makes any sense. I think from an outsider's perspective, um, just looking in, it almost seems like some of those things are, are like I could, uh, I could pro like I could pick out your style in that. Just like mm. something that, like you're saying that when your hand is becoming yours, yeah. you know, and you know, just like a, the way an arm turns a particular way, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. or like a particular juxtaposition of a of a hand or something that you can pick that out, you know, it, yeah, as being something like you're coming from you or whatever. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, you just had a book come out, right? Yes, uh, paper I did. cuts. You wanna yes. you wanna talk about that a little bit? Um, I could go grab it and that. <laughs> okay. Well, the uh, videos no, the videos not being was... recorded, only the audio. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> it's quite a, actually pretty pretty big book. It's eighty pages. It got published by Drago. Basically, with this book, it was sort of the goal of it was to be less of a street art book. And more focusing on where I've gone with the work since being on the street. I mean, it, it shows like sort of the roots of the work having come from that street work, but uh, it's really dealing with, in particular, the show I just had, Due Date. But it also, you know, through an, a series of interviews and whatnot, we also discuss, uh, you know, sort of like my process of going from the street to being more of a gallery artist at this point. Wait, Lots is this of the, color photos. Is this your first book? It is, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, pretty uh, stressful helping organize everything, but uh, it's pretty cool. It's kind of weird, you know? Yeah, do you feel a, a sense of, like, accomplishment? Uh, definitely. I definitely do. And uh, I feel pretty fortunate. We, we got a really good designer to work with us. The force behind the book was uh, my gallery, Black Rat, projects in london and, which is where uh, your show just was right yeah yeah and um you know spoke to drago and and uh you know they, they had been interested in my work for quite some time and you know it uh but but uh my guy was mike he really wanted to have something that just felt but really just clean and uh as well crafted as my paper cut work sort of is and is it going to be available over here in the States as well? Um, it is. I think that we're trying to get it into some sort of independent booksellers. Like, I know you can buy it on the Drago website, and I think you can also buy it via the gallery. Because, um, like, I did a bunch of, like, signed copies through them. And we're going to do, I think at some point we're going to do, like, a limited edition release with, like, a print that kind of comes along with it, you know, but, uh, yeah, it's, but you can't find it at like a Amazon. I don't think. I'm sure eventually all that stuff will get out there though. Right. Yeah. It yeah, literally yeah. just dropped like what last month or this month. Uh, yeah. Like a week ago, a little yeah. over a week ago it, it came out. So cool. Well, we'll definitely get the links up on the blog over to the, uh, the gallery site and, uh, see if we can get some people to get some orders in from over there. Um, you do something cool called the, uh, your daily draws and yeah. I, I just found your Flickr page. You, uh, I, I saw recently you said you just jump on the subway and just start drawing people. Has, is, has that become like a, a sort of meditation or, uh, it is like I have to do it every day before I sort of get in the studio to work. It just kind of helps me, uh, get my hand moving, just kind of connect with like, like getting out of my head and getting into like the art itself. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if you have this sort of issue. I like, I'll, I find that like I will start thinking more about the art than being involved in the art sometimes. So that there's like, you have, you end up like becoming very self-critical of yourself and you have to kind of break through that sort of level of criticism before you can actually just be involved in the work instead of like be involved in the making of the work. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you know, I describe it, I, every single per artist that I've talked to and mm -hmm. most of the ones that I know all sort of feel the same way about artwork becoming this meditative phase. And I think yeah. 
And whether it's it really is for everyone or not, I don't know. But you know, at some point, once you get into that groove and our mind shuts down, it just becomes pen stroke, brush stroke, uh, or whatever your your medium or tool is. Yeah, and it just starts not, to sort of flow out. You're not thinking about the mark making; you're just making the marks on their own. Yeah, and there's something uh, that's uh, very spiritual about that in terms of mm-hmm. like comparing it to, like, say, a monk who does a mantra. You know, yeah. every day to get his mind into a certain phase so that, you know, you could shut down the the extra sensory things that we have going on on a daily basis. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that. And I think for me personally, that those meditative moments where I get to shut all that stuff down is really where the reward of art making exists. Yeah. 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 I totally agree with you there. Along with all the other excess bonuses that come along with it but that most importantly is uh is what i think keeps people coming back and doing the work over and over again is writing something that that you're interested in i know that there's a lot of a lot of the street work and particularly i think the the drawings that i was looking at on your Flickr will have um a little sentence or or something sort of poetic you know a quick few word phrase or or something is that something important to you it is. I mean, the reason that you end up seeing that sort of text on the uh, on those those drawings is uh, it's just a, sort of a note to remind me what else was going on in the train, perhaps. But hold on, I'm just going to turn this. Uh, my dishwasher's going off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 mainly a note for for that kind of purpose. But uh, sometimes I like them better than others. You know, I'll go put those outside if it feels something. If it feels like something to me that's. Uh, open enough that someone else could read it and maybe identify with it rather than trying to tell somebody like this is what you need to think it's more of kind of like this is what i feel about something and you know maybe you'll relate to it too do you do uh like i saw there was something in london it was like a trash bin or some big box that you had wrote uh with just some oil sticks or something on yeah you wrote a phrase um is is some of that? Do you do that uh, spontaneously sometimes? Like, does, do uh, things just pop some, in your head? Some of them do. Mo- most of them uh, will just be like they come from the train. So I mean, they're spontaneous in the sense of like they're relating to some some environment, but not like I sit down and I'm like, hmm, what can I? What poetic thing can I say today? <laughs> well, that's like coming up with a tweet, right? It's like a. <laughs> A, yeah. a, a modern day Twitter account on the street, you know, yeah. coming up with that perfect 140 perfect little phrase or whatever. Yeah. You know, I mean, like the one, I think the one you saw from London was like having to do with like, you only live once unless you're a Buddhist or something, which I <laughs> yeah. was just like, I was like, oh, I'm really witty with that one. That sort of putting those little bits of text on the street. I think actually, you know, my first interaction with street art came, um, 98, 99, maybe. There's that artist, uh, De La Vega, who lived, uh, I think he's from like Harlem or something like that. And uh, he used to go around and write these little things on the sidewalk. And, you know, I thought it was like the most magical thing because you'd be walking along. And in a way, it's kind of this perfect placement because it's like at your feet. And in New York, you know, you're walking with your head down. And so there's like this thing there. And, you know, you'd be like, how how did that get there and yet that means there was something kind of interesting about that uh you know it's part of my like process i was like i'll just i'll steal that i'll do my own version of it and put it out there and uh how amazing is it when that world opens up so you see like something like a little phrase like that that when you know you're just walking along the ground with you looking at your feet and what that does, what it happened for me is that a whole wide world opens up from there. Did you find yeah. that same experience? Yeah, yeah. I think because well, when I went to like when I went to art school, like there wasn't like a lot of graph in like my suburb that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. So coming to New York and like seeing all this graffiti everywhere, it was just at that point it was a little bit more like visual noise to me. Unless it was something that was very clear, like seeing like revs or costs like rolled on the side of a building where it was like, okay, I can, I understand what's like being said within that context. And, yeah. and I think like 
you know, I kind of forgot about that. And, and to see this sort of thing that suddenly the, the space around you suddenly becomes this, this place for art making. It really was like, uh, it was sort of a watershed moment for me. You're like, wow, I, I don't have to keep the stuff inside the house anymore. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's crazy how that works. I mean, and then it goes even further from that too, with once you become aware of your surroundings and these works that are happening, you become sort of hyper aware because not only have you now started seeing things, but now you're starting to look for things. So it's not yeah. only just casual observance, but it's like, it's like a, it's a search. It becomes almost like a game. It, it, yeah, it does. And you know, what's kind of wild about it too is when you, you like know the people that are doing it. And like, there's this, uh, this one artist, uh, sort of collective called Peru Anna, Anna Peru. That's out of Brooklyn. And I was over in London and I saw one of their little stickers like down on the, like, you know, the bottom of a pole. And it was like, wow, I just walked past the same spot that they were at at some point. You know, like, you get this weird sort of relationship to space because of other people having gone by that same place at some point. Right. And that's something that happens even for casual observers, I think, once they become aware. Because we just had a big project here in San Diego this past summer, um, the Viva La Revolution show. And a lot of artists came in from out of town and did a bunch of street work. And... We're in a city where the last 10 years has been uber conservative. I mean, it's a conservative city, but it's been super conservative from the 9-11 hangover. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the arts and things that were happening in the city that were starting to build up just prior to 9-11 got squashed really quick. Mm. What I noticed from this museum show was that the people who were going to the museum and, fi- and getting the map to go find all the street work on the street were now starting to look at the streets from a new context, you know, mm. just in that same way that people who become involved in it are now walking down the street, looking at the light poles, looking at different spots in the street, yeah. instead of just looking at the ground to get from one place to the next, it, it becomes an interesting place to maneuver around in. Yeah. Even for that casual observer. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely like, kind of opens up their environment. To, they realize that it's not just, as, it's not just getting from point A to point B, but there's all this, world in between those spaces Mm -hmm. i think it's improving the uh, at least in my own neighborhood you know the the quality of life for people to be Mm -hmm. able to recognize hey we can actually take some of this space this space this space is ours to to live and work and do things in. it's not just uh you know pay to play sort of idea yeah until until uh until it gets too expensive because it's become cool and then you're you got to move someplace else. Uh, well, that's the nature of evolution, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel like you know, you like you see street art popping up in a neighborhood, and it's like you should buy, just buy there now <laughs> because pretty soon, you know, you're going to end up in a you know a nice little sort of classy neighborhood that uh, no longer has street art in it anymore. Right. That's why I'm just trying to do murals all over the place and try to. Uh, get cheap rent and then buy and sell. Is that you do a lot of murals at this point or? Um, I, this actually, this last summer I, I made a big effort. Um, one, because I knew a bunch of outsiders were coming into San Diego. So I was like, you know, I got like the big dog on the block. and wanted to piss on the corners to make sure yeah, that yeah. not all the corners were as clean as they always are and put some color in the, the gray and, and light tan walls of San Diego, which is oversaturated with, um, the downtown area has been revamped for like the last 10 years. Yeah. So it's like uber clean, pushing all the homeless to the very outskirts. And uh, I don't even like to use that weird term gentrification because it's so like has so many weird connotations to it already. But um, yeah, it definitely be, the city became pretty weird. So I, I made a, an effort to not focus so much on making works that were for sale. Mm-hmm. You know, which has always been something important to me with doing stuff on on the streets. You know, like that yeah. idea of just giving something back for fun, for yeah. free to a community. It's like here, you guys have supported me. Here's what I I have available to give back. Yeah, you know. So I made an effort to do those things because a lot of times, as 
as artists, we have to focus so much on selling artwork to survive and pay the bills. Yeah. That it, it can turn into like making a product where, you know, like I said, we have that, those, those values that come along with making the work that is important to us, which obviously are always come from a more pure standpoint. But at the same time, we have to sell stuff in galleries to pay our rent and eat food and take care of our families and shit. So a lot of times, sometimes it, it, it's easy to get sort of clouded yeah. or feel like you're just making things to make them as opposed to having some sort of more purified reason. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually like with the street stuff now, I mean, I kind of hit a point where, I mean, the, the people that I had seen that were pretty successful at making a living out of it were like using the street, put a piece out a couple times, then you get a print made of it. And uh, I found that that was, uh, it was like trying to second guess things a little bit. And it became not what I got into street art with to begin with. So that's kind of why I've separated like, you know, the gallery work is now by my name. Right. And the street stuff is purely, I'll never do prints of it or anything like that. It's just, um, it's going to be a, it's like a unique fun practice for me mm-hmm. that's outside of like a commercial sphere. Right. Um, Which it's important to stay out of that weird, like capitalistic uh, sort of formula that we as a Western society have just sort of become a part of. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't, you know, I have to say, I don't mind the gallery work at all because I kind of I reached a point after my last show that I had been um really thinking of it as this product and I was getting sick of making it Mm -hmm. and with this show I just was kind of like if I'm going to do this and hopefully try to have a living from it I've got to just enjoy what I'm making and not worry about who's going to buy it or what they want to buy in it and just make the thing that I'm interested in and it was like the first time in one of those settings where I just felt excited about it. I felt excited about it in the way, I mean, it was just like, like the same kind of creativity that you'd have making a piece for the street. I mean, except for you're not having to run away. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, that's that creative process. The creative process is always yeah. the same for me or for me. And I assume for a lot of other people, like I always say, I, I make the same painting over and over again. It just happens to look different. And have a different title and maybe a little different backstory, but yeah. it's the same thing every time. Yeah, making things. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like I don't know. I found with like the um, the the street process, there was a point, and you know, I mean, graffiti is like it's all about self promotion in a way. I mean, you know, you're getting your name out there, and the street stuff. It just, I mean, I came from an advertising background. You know, after I got out of art school, I'm like, how do I pay my bills? I was like, okay, I'll go uh, work at an ad agency and, uh-huh. you know, make websites and stuff. And I started doing the street art as a way to sort of, like, deal with the yuckiness I felt every day after work. Yeah, um, yeah. To kind of do something that was, I thought, more pure. And then suddenly that thing that was, like, pure became the job. And then it wasn't the pure thing that... I enjoyed in the first place to kind of get away from that, you know, and now it's like, you know, I just kind of, it's all fun at this point. Yeah. It's just all, I'm kind of enjoying all aspects of it personally right now. What, uh, you had mentioned, uh, if, uh, uh, you mentioned Buddha a little earlier, or do you, are you, uh, practicing Buddhist? Do you, Uh, do you, uh, or do you, I tried, I tried, my wife and I lived in San Francisco for, a couple years and I started going out to this place called Green Gulch Farms. Uh, it's like this, uh, I think it's part of a Zen center out there in Marin. It's like in the middle of a eucalyptus forest. It's Is it with, uh, with Gil Franzdahl? I'm not sure. One of my, my wife's, um, her aunt's ex-husband, I think, was a monk out there. So he actually... You know, I moved up to San Francisco was unhappy and my wife's aunt was like, you know, you should go out and meditate with i don't even remember the guy's name at this point but so i would go out there and it was such a it became this very reflective sort of process that uh i try to do when i'm under deadline that meditation just it would be a really good thing to be doing but suddenly becomes not that important <laughs> with that said you know there's always things that you could 
you know, you could take and figure out uh, how to make your life better or, you know, make your yeah. mind better. Ways to be more mindful, right? It doesn't always, you don't always have to sit down for a half hour to meditate. Yeah. To find those spots. No, and, you should. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're in the studio working every day, I, I would, I assume that I meditate a number of hours every day. Yeah. Just yeah. Not I mean, quite I the same. To, I also listen to a lot of national public radio. That's so meditative. It becomes not so. I mean, I try not to listen to it so much anymore, but it's, you know, it gets, particularly the work I'm doing, it's so boring. I yeah. mean, the, the cut paper stuff, I love it, but there's a point about a week into it where I'm just like, oh, like the beginning is like, you know, you get that first bit kind of figured out and you're like, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to look so cool. And then like the last week is like, oh, it's going to be so cool. But there's like, you know, this last piece I finished was took me three months. Wow. So I had like a good like two month gap where it was kind of like, oh, just got to slowly execute this big thing. <laughs> That's that weird problem like in the middle where you just hate it for, for a little bit. And then yeah. you fall right back in or love. Like, am I going to even get this thing done? <laughs> it's like a bad relationship. <laughs> it turns out great in the end. Cool. Well, let's um, let's plug some of your stuff. Uh, what's your uh, what's your web address? Uh, it is uh, uh, elbow toe.com. We talked a little bit about the show in London. You just did the show at uh, what is it called? Black Rat. Uh, Black Rat Projects, um, www.blackrat.com is their uh, web address. And uh, I just actually just got uh, picked up by uh, this guy called Andrew Edlin in New York City. And I will be doing a show with them next spring, I believe. So that's kind of all I'll be doing for the next 12 months is working on some big panels for them. So that should be fun. You know what I want? I did want to ask you. Um, just randomly last night while I was going through your stuff, I had seen there's the one painting called um, "Rites of Spring," which I yeah. think yesterday was the uh, the spring equinox. Yeah. Or today, maybe today or yesterday. Uh, yesterday at uh, four twenty-seven or something like that. Um, and while after I had looked through some some images that I was going through. I was cleaning up my iTunes, my podcast folder, and I found a Terrence McKenna speech called Rites of Spring, just randomly. Mm. Um, and I was curious if you were a McKenna fan at all, or no, if there just no. happened to be any weird connections. Let just, me just write, I'm going to write that name down. Hold on a second. Terrence McKenna. Is it a good, uh, good speech? Uh, well, he gives a number of really, really interesting speeches. He's a, uh, a big supporter of the hallucinogens. Uh, and he's he's actually no he's he's no longer alive. He just died from um, from a cancer in his brain that uh, actually looked like a mushroom, which I is very strange. Wow, uh, <laughs> not funny, but strange. Yeah. Uh, okay, good. I, I I thought maybe there might be some interesting. No, connection. that actually kind of. I mean, I think that's the one that has the like bushes that look like you can see that they're like plywood. Kind is of. that in that one? Yeah, and yeah. it's sort of like, it kind of implies that, you know, those like shoot hunting stands uh -huh. where like hunters will get behind those like wood boxes and yeah. there's like a little slat through. And so um, there's like that, there's like a mating dance going around this woman with a dress pulled up. And it's it's more about, I mean, this whole show that I just did is about uh, uh, my, my wife and I were trying to have a kid. And the whole show is kind of about the process as well as my sort of fears of uh -huh. what being a parent could be like, like all the craziness that could happen. And yeah. that one is just sort of about the whole ritual that, you know, I mean, she's got her dress pulled up. It's sort of like childlike in a weird way, but also like, you know, my wife, her family has a bunch of peacocks that live on their house, right? <laughs> and like those like peacocks, they like spring comes and they're like walking around with their like feathers up in the air. It's kind of this weird thing. And 
something about that gesture just kind of reminded me of like this really weird mating thing. So And um, we're we're like just like the monkeys, we're not that much different from the birds. We have we have very strange mating rituals as well. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well I think that's a good spot to end it on the, the mating cool. rituals. Alright dude, well uh again, thank you very much for, for taking the time to shoot the shit with me. Appreciate Absolutely, it. man. Thanks for uh, asking me. Yeah, totally. And uh, next, if you're ever over in New York, let me know, and uh, we'll go grab a drink or something. Yeah, I'd love that. I'm I'm actually trying to plan a uh, early summer trip, maybe as early as April, if if some motherfuckers buy some paintings. Okay. Well, <laughs> good luck, man. I yeah. like. I was checking out your site. I like the work a lot, man. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right, brother. All right. Have, have a good, good day. One. Take care. You too. Bye. All right. Trying to show you over and over. Look at these, my childbearing hips. Look at these, my ruby red, ruby lips. Look at these, my work strong arms. And you've got to see my bottle full of charm. I lay it all at your feet. You turn around and say back to me.